Hello, this is Jack Tutor of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Kevin Martin, also known as The Bug. He releases music as Kevin Richard Martin. He's involved in Zonal, King, Midas Sound, Ladybug, formerly Techno Animal, Curse of the Golden Vampire, Ice, Razor X Productions. There's so much to Kevin's name. And it's evident in this conversation that Kevin breathes music, and yet his productions find a way to assimilate all this adoration and rebound it outward in something which is entirely his own, that doesn't just emulate what he loves, identifies the core sensations that result from the music that he vibes with and projects that instead, not the surface aesthetics. I loved speaking with Kevin. It's so evident that you're speaking with someone who absolutely adores what he's talking about and it's so infectious. And he's done a new soundtrack to Andrei Tarkovsky's film Solaris. It's being released as a standalone record, Return to Solaris, on Phantom Limb. And Kevin has this amazing relationship with space and his abilities of manipulating it within his music. So in the bug that's perhaps throttling space, making it quake, his heavy immersion in sound system culture being a key proponent of that. In his music as Kevin Richard Martin, this soundtrack included, he really makes space sprawl. And he leaves so much of it empty as well, so potently. On this soundtrack, I I feel like the whole thing has this arc shape to it. It kind of clings to the perimeter and leaves this center palpably vacant. There's so much grittiness as well to this sound, perhaps due to a lot of the equipment that he was using in order to make this, this old Russian synthesizers. It's fabulous as a standalone listen. You can check it out at phantomlimblabel.bandcamp.com. Head over also to kevinrichardmartin.bandcamp.com for more releases and thebugmusic.bandcamp.com. That's only a small slither of stuff you can check out with Kevin's name to it, but it's a a good place to start. And as always, head to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Kevin's picks. Thank you so much for listening. Your feedback is always really warming. I really love hearing from you. Great to know you're enjoying the podcast as much as I am. Without further ado, this is Kevin Martin on Crucial Listening. Hello, Kevin. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hey, Jack. It's it's good to speak to you. Thanks for coming on. So we're here to talk about your three important albums that you've picked. Um, Before 
we get to those, I want to talk about your new soundtrack for Tarkovsky's Solaris, Return to Solaris, which is coming out on Phantom Limb. So you are asked, as I understand, to score a film of your choice by Boru Art Center, which is a massive question. Um, and you went for Solaris. So firstly, what led to that choice to choose this film? Well, actually, I gave them a list of 10 films. So oh, right. It, it wasn't just Solaris, but um, Solaris was two films in the running that it looked like they could get rights to, and the other one dropped out anyway. So it ended up just being Solaris, which when that news came to me, I was actually a little apprehensive because <laughs> uh, the original score is amazing and i'm just so in awe of the movie anyway and artemiev's score was a bit daunting to follow you know and then also you had cliff martinez's american remake the hollywood remake mm. of solaris which a lot of people diss but i think the score is incredible and actually i, I like the movie too despite george clooney you know <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so when it was confirmed that that would be the film that i would go in on as i said i was pretty nervous um but excited you know so it was a challenge and instantly it was a case of well what can i try and do differently you know how can i frame the score differently you know what do i want from a score for solaris and it was the first time i'd been able to score to film really like literally have the movie running and be recording elements live to the movie because I the first film score I'd ever attempted as such was I tried to do a version of a film called The Conversation many years before in fact it was the first bug release um, and it's where I got the name The Bug because it's all about a surveillance expert called uh, played by Gene Hackman uh, who goes mad because he ends up thinking he's been bugged <laughs> by, by the CIA or FBI. I can't remember quite who he, he was working for. So in those days, I didn't have the technology. I literally had a video recorder that I was having to press rewind forward, rewind forward all the time and making notes and just trying to get it right in my head. And then I tried to put a my score to that movie because at that time there was never a score available and there was just Walter Murch's sound design in the film mm. I, didn't even, I wasn't even aware that there was a film score until a couple of years ago when uh, Boomcat suddenly started selling the score to the conversation so for me it was a revelation to be able to work with the movie as the movie's you know running through and to mm. being able to, to to literally play live alongside the movie with the technology that's available now. So that's a very long-winded answer, by the way, That's Jack. a great <laughs> answer. Um, I mean, also as part of this as well, it sounded like that you wanted to hunt out equipment that would pay homage to the film's era and origin. I, I'm intrigued as to where that search took you. Oh, that's just me being a gear slut, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> And obsessed by uh, technology, you know, music technology. And I'd been eyeing, I'd already had uh, equipment by this Russian manufacturer um, called Soma before, you know, um, which I was a big fan of. So for me, I'd been tracking this new piece of equipment that they'd come with um, 
called a pulsar, which is a drum machine. I'd had the, a synthesizer called the Lyra before, which I was already assorted by because uh, it sounded very antiquated. It didn't sound modern in any way, and it it, it wasn't played like a, a how do you say it wasn't played like um, normal synthesizers. And the company generally called Soma have very unusual design practices and, and come up with items that are really quite revelatory and, and original. You know, they're a maverick company, really, which mm. attracted me to them. And, yeah, when I, I'd been looking at this drum machine called the Pulsar that they just announced uh, around the time it was confirmed I would do the score, and it felt like a good excuse to, to go for it and pull the trigger on one of those, knowing that it made sense to me that this Russian movie <laughs> uh, <laughs> should have a Russian drum machine right. that sounds like it was made in the 70s, you know, the, 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 the machinery itself. Um, and d despite the fact it's a drum machine, I didn't use it as a drum machine. I used it as a tone generator, really. And, yeah, it was just fortuitous that I was able to track it down, contact the company and use it for the score itself. Because I was sort of determined the, the, the score shouldn't sound modern. Hmm. It made no sense to me. It wasn't like it, I was scoring a new version of Solaris. No. I was basically scoring the original Solaris. So anything that sounded ultra-modern on top just sounded wrong to me. Hmm. So I wanted it to sound like the score had been made in the 70s, you know? So obviously I've only heard this in isolation, but there is such a wonderful sense of carving out space within this score where obviously I guess you have other sound, diegetic sound taking place within the film that this is supposed to embrace and hang around the edges of. Given that this is your first soundtrack proper, uh, how did you find that process of generating space for other elements that you're not bringing to the table well luckily i was able to get them to send me a copy of the film that that the original music had been taken away oh from. thank god yeah so that was that was joy yeah <laughs> um and i guess anyone that's a fan of tarkovsky is aware how he paces his films you know they're the classic ultra slow art film and Again, for me, the film generally exists at such a strung-out pace and how it moves is fairly undynamic mm. apart from certain key scenes. So it was just a case of synchronising my mind and my compositional style to the film, you know, and it, it wasn't... It wasn't a hard ask as such because I'd already made music in, in that manner before. You know, with Techno Animal, um, we did an album called Reentry, and disc two of Reentry was music made for as imaginary film scores and very long, strung out pieces. And the first Techno Animal album had very long, strung out instrumental pieces that were arrhythmic. Maybe for people who know me only as the bug, it would seem like um, a radical shift. But the, 
the whole point for me of doing uh, Return to Solaris uh, and accepting the invite was because for a few years I'd had my mind set anyway on trying harder to to get work with film scores or sound design or areas outside of clubs mm. because for a good few years it, I knew that the music industry generally has a vested interest in making caricatures out of people, you know, and you can only be seen as one thing, you know, really to a large extent. Mm. And that's not me, you know, I, my, my tastes are wide and I like extremes. Uh, so for for me, it w- it's always crucial to stay ahead of your cell by day, you know, mm-hmm. and try not to become a cartoon figure or in, in terms of predictability or how a me- media outlets will portray you. And I think that it, it was, it's been very, very... Um, much at the forefront of my mind that I wanted to work on a film score. So it was just totally fortuitous that uh, Wouter Voiroit uh, approached to ask if I'd be interested, you know, and it, I was over the moon. And you performed the score right back in October. That's right. Yeah. How was that? Surreal as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if I swear. I, no, I tend you can to swear do quite often. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it was extremely surreal, you know, because it was the only show I played after lockdown last year, and the audience were all in masks. Yeah. And so, well, to be honest, actually, they weren't that socially distanced. <laughs> Sorry, I was a bit nervous about that, really, because yeah. they just seemed to pack the people in the the venue. But it was an extreme extraordinarily beautiful venue you know it's a massive old art deco cinema um with and the screen size was massive uh so for spectacle it was amazing you know um and Wouter and his team in ghent at the venue were so pro and on point and so enthusiastic about the whole project that it made me relax into it more but it was a bit daunting as well because new friends that I'd made in Brussels were all coming to the show. And I prefer to play shows where I don't know anyone in the audience. Uh-huh. It makes me less nervous. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So uh, that was a bit uh, inhibiting in a way, but cool because the reaction was really nice. But just very strange to be playing shows again, you know. I, the, the last show I'd done literally about a week or two before lockdown, probably in late February, had been a a performance of Sirens in Copenhagen. And it was so horrendous, the whole atmosphere at the time, because at that time, I think literally midnight on the the night of the show, the Danish government said they they were shutting everything down immediately. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And... The warning sign was already in place on our way there. And I, I don't think I'd ever washed my hands so much in my life. Or <laughs> so much in my life, me and my sound man were just behaving like paranoid neurotics. <laughs> um, and it was just a really unreal atmosphere. And Sirens is a very intense performance anyway. 
and then for, to not play any shows at all until this one was, yeah, was sort of bringing a multitude of different emotions, you know, like excitement in one side, absolute nerves at another side, terror, having to play to a film score, uh, play a film score, sorry, to a movie that I'd never done before. Um, just loads of different emo emotions, but luckily it went super well and shows were sold out. The audience reaction was amazing. The, the re main review that I saw was fantastic. And, it galvanized the idea of of making it into um an album brilliant yeah the score is gorgeous uh i really encourage people to to check it out even in isolation that's absolutely lovely kevin we should talk about your three important albums and one question i like to ask before we go into the actual records themselves is how you thought about the word important when you made your selection i mean i know we had a quick discussion between us in fact over email uh prior to coming on this show about the records you're going to pick but was there a particular way that you thought about the word important to come up with the list of records that you did music is crucial full stop for me so the idea of it being important of course every every uh major record that's made me swerve you know jump mm oh, what's that, has had impact on me because I basically devoted my life to music, you know, and a child of music. So to have to narrow it down to three was probably <laughs> so sorry. You know, it was like, oh, my God, three <laughs> special albums. And ironically, the quietest uh, look like they're interested in me doing uh, something similar. And it, it, that's it's sort of painful. To, yeah. I mean, it follows my social media uh, outlets. Like on um, Instagram, I put an album of the day every day and I have done since lockdown oh. just because it was important for me to stay passionate about music. And I, I hope that it might have a knock-on effect for other people whilst we were all questioning, you know, life, <laughs> reality, mm. everything. Um, it was important for me to stay connected with music. So, you know, I'm, I, I made a point of listening to an album at least every day because in recent years, I don't think, I think I hadn't so much. Mm -hmm. Just been so wrapped up in my own music. So, yeah, I mean, I'm veering away from your question, which is, yeah, of course, when you, when you, said you wanted me to talk about three important albums to me. I thought it would be fun to link them to three different areas that I, I've worked in, you know. So one I linked to The Bug, another I linked to uh, the Solaris score, and another I linked to, you know, my, my birth as Kevin Richard Martin in the last year and a half. Awesome. Well, I'll let you pick which one we go to first. Which one do you want to talk about? I guess because we've been talking about Solaris, it would make sense to talk about the Andromeda strain. Aha, uh -huh, yeah. Because uh, it's a science fiction soundtrack uh, made in, I think, 1971, I believe. The guy's name who composed it, I'm probably going to totally mispronounce, but <laughs> Gil Mel or Gilles Mele, 
I'm not quite sure how you to pronounce his name, who I believe was a jazz uh, composer and had been writing TV series when um, he was approached to do the score for this bleak, dystopian science fiction uh, film. Yeah. Do you remember how you first came into it? Well, I remember since being a very, very young boy, my mum was obsessed with science fiction uh, movies and series. So I've, I've been like gobbling up and consuming sci-fi since I was a kid, literally. So cool. Like, like my mum was obsessed by the original Star Trek. So I've been watching that every week. And... <laughs> The Andromeda Strain was just one of those films that I must have seen, Jesus, when I was probably 20 or something, uh, the first time, or probably on Channel 4 or something. I can't remember the first time I saw the film. And at the time I saw the film, in all honesty, I probably didn't give a flying <laughs> word about the score. You know? <laughs> I was just like finding the film itself pretty mesmerizing. And the irony is the film is about um, a virus. Mm. And, you know, the uncontrollability of a virus. In the film, it's, a, it's basically around the idea of an alien virus, but things like quarantine, you know, and disinformation are rife in the film, and wow. it's just a para paranoia feast of a film, you know? So... It's sort of fitting <laughs> for, for the last year and a half. We've all suffered globally, you know. Um, but the score itself, if I remember rightly, it was probably a member of God, uh, my first band, that lent me the film soundtrack. I think it was Gary Jeff, the bass player in God, that lent it to me. I could be wrong. I know it was somebody that lent it to me and the artwork is just astonishing because there was a limited edition version, which unfortunately I've never been able to, to track down at a reasonable price. Um, the, it's like a folding hexagonal sleeve yeah. made up of a board and straight away, as soon as I saw it, I was like, Oh, I'm going to love this. <laughs> However it sounds, I'm going to love this score. <laughs> and he knew the stuff I was into when he suggested I might like it. And uh, that would have been like, oh, 15, 20 years ago, I guess, that he lent me the album. Um, and I was just blown away because it sounded so futuristic, hmm. and sounded so completely out there and not what you'd expect from a film score, you know, unless you, you, you're, you've already well grounded in, in the history of composition of film, you know, which I wasn't at that time. Mm. I am now. Um, and I was just astounded that that could have been made into a major movie in Hollywood, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I, I subsequently read, I think if I, if I remember rightly, the director was really hardcore and I can't remember the, the film director's name, but he was very hardcore in, in specifying that he didn't want a conventional score. He wanted to use uh, a score that was atonal, experimental. And uh, if I remember rightly, I think there was a, 
a synthesizer actually developed for the film and invented for the film score mm. uh, but directly so again it's a sort of you know it's a, it's a testament to that time you know um and i think considering it was made in 1971 even if i like I listened to it over the weekend when I knew we were going to talk, just to remind myself of the score. And it's still astonishing. You know, yeah. it sounds like Orteca one minute. Yeah. It sounds like Mika Levy the next minute. It sounds like dub music concrete. And it's a short score. It's about 30 minutes or something, you know. But just you don't get bored for one, or I certainly don't get bored for one second. I mean, it's not easy listening. You know, and it's certainly uh, experimental, but astonishing for me, personally. Yeah, I read about this one, and what you say is Robert Wise, I think the director's Oh, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, it's him. Yeah. Um, and the quote that I took down that you referred to there was that he wanted uh, Jill to write music that had no themes, no chords, no harmonic structure with totally yeah, new right. sonorities. Yeah, Holy yeah, yeah, yeah. What a demand. Yeah, yeah. Mental. <laughs> and are there any particular, I mean, because there are so many gorgeous textures on this score. It's a really jagged thing. Are there any particular moments that really protrude to you that really make your ears prick up when you listen i'll be honest i've never even i couldn't even tell you the song titles mm. because when i put it on i just get immersed in it you know and i i don't want to think of it in a in a in, the, in any other sense mm-hmm. than i'm being enveloped in a, an absolute sound world you know and um i think uh there's a sort of alien quality to it, and I don't mean in, you know, <laughs> outer space aliens and spaceships, blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, literally, there's a core of it that's absolutely unknowable, mm. you know. And I keep going back to it for that reason, you know. I think so much music I love, and we'll talk about Metal Box soon, for instance, there's a core to some of my favorite music which is forever fresh and forever sounds like what the fuck jaw on the floor (laughs) what is this (laughs) Uh yeah Uh, and that's very true of andromeda strain for me and just the way it segues from passage to passage you know i think at that time when you think 1971 in parallel you would have all those amazing jazz albums, you know, Miles Davis leading the the charge into the studio with Teo Macero. Yeah. You would have dub revolutionaries like Lee Perry or King Tubby going crazy in studios there. So it was a good time, I think, probably for people being creative with new technology in to find ways to mutate and fuck with sound. You know, uh, mm. I think that's exactly what Gilmel did. And very unusually to get a director, a major film company to push him further. You know, amazing. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. Honestly, he must have been laughing all the way to the bank. 
Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you put it alongside the context of, say, someone like Miles, where, you know, I guess this was sort of around a bitch's brew sort of time where he was like recontextualizing jazz in the context of the studio and saying, look, we can snip this and, you know, put it in different places. I really feel like that Jill's um, status as a jazz musician comes through on this record hard, which is strange in amongst such textures like these these kind of electronic textures to have what sometimes feels like a very fluid jazzy improvisatory energy also going through it it's really i mean i'm saying this on the back of like two listens but it's really peculiar it's cool yeah i just think it you know as, as, as I, I just mentioned really i think it's um con- constantly morphing and, and shape-shifting in a way that the best music can do really and remains captivating from start to finish which a lot of albums don't mm, yeah <laughs> and a lot of albums don't age too well whereas i think this age is this still sounds like the future to me talk about your second record then kevin which one do you want to go for now uh okay we're talking about jazz so maybe we should talk about uh the next yes and next i was introduced to this album by a composer called paul schutzer who at that time was a very good friend of mine um and introduced me to a lot of amazing music and at the time and this would have been again like 20 plus years ago, over 20 years ago. And he and I were huge fans of electric jazz, you know, that that period from probably 1969 to 74, where a lot of astonishing jazz albums were made, you know, by the likes of Pharaoh Sanders, Don Cherry, um, Alice Coltrane, mm. you name it. Yeah. And he just ha- happened to mention one day, you know, there's an, have you ever heard the next? And I was like, no. And he uh, said, Oh, I think you're going to really like the name. <laughs> uh, and just the way he said it. And he knew my taste pretty well. Anyway, I was like, yeah, hit me up. What's it sound like? And then he put it on and within seconds I was hooked. And the, for anyone that hasn't heard the record, it's just one long continuous track um start to finish which you know at flat rate you're like well nothing's changed <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it feels like an eternal baseline mm. um, which is exactly the sort of baseline i love anyway that sort of ostinato uh repetitive you know heartbeat swing but the beauty of the next for me is how it's sort of revolutionary in how subtly the evolutions shift whereby what you think you started with 
that suddenly become something quite different by the end, but you're not aware how, because it still feels somehow the same relationship from start to finish, but something's changed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I, th I, th I think they're magicians, literally. I, I, I became obsessed by the Knicks, and they're at, they've become really literally one of my favourite bands, if you like. Uh, and the first time I saw them, if I remember rightly, I was very eager to see them, having become besotted by their recordings. And the first time I saw them, I seem to remember, was uh, Islington Chapel, uh, which was an amazing location to see them. Uh, and I distinctly remember being so blown away by the show that as they walked off stage, I unselfconsciously and sneakily tried to make my way to the stage whilst everyone else was leaving the venue to find out what effects they'd been using. <laughs> because some of the sounds that they were generating sounded so completely synthetic and, and otherworldly that uh -huh. there was not one single <laughs> pedal or effect or anything additional on stage. They just generated all those incredible sounds from a double bass, uh, a drum kit and a piano and that astounded me because i'm not a fool and uh, my ears fairly well tuned and to feel that i'd been totally bewitched and 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 sort of disorientated enough to think wow what is those what are those electronics they're using <laughs> and then finding out they hadn't been using any uh was was astounding you know, like literally astounding. And and every time I've seen them subsequently, they just never fail. Actually, mm -hmm. it's shocking. You know, you normally you'll go and see a band where you, if you see a band quite regularly, you'll you'll start getting a bit bored, or you'll think that they just fall into tricks. Mm -hmm. Their improvisational skills are astounding. And I have to say, I fell out of love with a lot of improvisational music when I was living in London. Um, because I felt that I'd be going to performances where I'd be waiting, not waiting, but the performances would be 20% or 30% successful. Obviously, I can name a few major artists that can go beyond that, you know. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing Cecil Taylor. I remember seeing AMM, uh, both of which were mind-blowing. But I would go to a lot of improv shows and find that you just be waiting for the good parts mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and totally. also what you thought was improvised if you started seeing the same performers over and over again you suddenly thought well, actually this isn't improvised or not what my thought of improvisation was because they're doing the same thing they did in the last three shows more <laughs> or less you know a slight variation um but the next literally do <laughs> improvise every show and every show sounds different you know much like their albums you know they go one minute they'll go from sounding like um some epic morricone score to the next minute they'll sound like you know that the artist tortoise would want to be <laughs> to the next minute sounding like epic ambient music Etc. Etc. You know, and just you know, totally bewitching and extraordinary. You know, even talking about them still now, I'm just like, 
amazed at how good they are as musicians. And you know, I think that's the thing. I'll, a lot of people who are into jazz or who are into rock music can tend to get blinded and worship technique. Technique's not never been the issue for me. That's not my God and not what I look for in music. Mm. If anything, I like things that are a bit wonky and off, but what I like and love about the necks is they obviously are technically gifted, but it's not about being showy with technique. It's about capturing an atmosphere or a state of mind and just hypnotizing you. And for me, that's what sex does as an album. Is it one that you put on often since you first discovered it? Regular. Slade. <laughs> <laughs> I could not remember how many times I've had that one on. Um, and what's interesting again for me as a as a complete obsessive to studio technology is they very obviously used studio technology on on the album Sex. It's not pretending to be a live album. You know, mm -hmm. there's over overdubs and effects throughout but it doesn't diminish the mood it doesn't feel tricksy uh it just enhances the playing and enhances the the listening experience yeah i'd totally forgotten that they had overdubs on this record because i think it's probably been about eight years since i played this one but i think it just gets burned into your head as a totally organic live record probably because the most protrusive element is the dynamic between them rather than the studio in between them you know yeah yeah and also if you're hooked i don't know where your interest lies in them or in jazz but if you were hooked on trying to find jazz albums that were as minimal as in a silent way for instance mm. and weren't as far as I'm concerned, spoiled by excessive soloing. The next are like the Holy Grail. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Because it's like, okay, I don't have to put up with the showy technical virtuosity in my face. I can just zone to the, the spirituality of the music or the atmosphere of the music uh, without anything getting in the way of that. And yeah, just be completely seduced by by the swing you know and the grooves they have so much going for them you know on various albums they can one minute one release release by release be very atonal the next minute they can have like more freer uh, grooves or very percussive based grooves Next release, you can listen to them, and it, and it just sounds more like um, more conventional jazz. Yeah. It's just every album is surprising, and I never, of course, you know what the ingredients are, but that's also the beauty of it. You know, it's like how they can keep evolving and shape shifting album by album. Like the the latest album sounded like Can in places. Um, yes, yeah, and more crowd rocky, you know. So, yeah, great band, extraordinary band. Yeah, 
I get nervous for them every time I see them play because I'm like, <laughs> they've got, you know, as you say, they go from scratch and someone's got to do the first thing. Uh, it's shocking, isn't it? Just how they appear so composed. Yes. In, in what they do. I don't see any sign of nerves when I see them play, you know, and, or any sign of jitters or or faulty playing on any of the show. And I, I don't know how many times I've seen them now. Mm. Probably at least 10 times. Yeah. Um, you couldn't play this music, I don't think, if you had any stiffness or reservation. There's like They're like water, you know, especially with Chris on the yeah. piano. It's just yeah, a cascade. Yeah, I agree. And I think they're so completely besotted by what they do and passionate about what they do. It, it, the genuine honesty that the music shines through. I've seen you mention about, and this may have actually been in reference to a totally different record, and I'm probably going to misquote you as well, so this is going well already, but uh, <laughs> that you uh, have a present interest or a recent interest in moving towards something more super reductive and and minimal which feels in parallel with you know what the next do on sex yeah, especially yeah because yeah, i haven't yeah of course i haven't put this into a context of why i chose them yeah i mean in a way the frequencies for leaving earth series that i composed and mixed down in in lockdown situation in our new home of Brussels had in, in my mind's eye, it was the idea of putting together a series of recordings that somehow it exists in some fictitious border of, you know, glacial ambient jazz, elusive film scores and deep spiritual drone music, mm. you know, and when I worked on those records in our new home uh, city, um, it was really as a monastic experience because it felt like the world was falling apart <laughs> last right. year. Yeah. You know? And it was like to try and stay sane. If you're responsible for generating the cash for your family two young kids and you're seeing your livelihood disappear through the collapse of live shows, you're just thinking, well, what do I do here? I sink or I swim, you know? And it was like, I'm not going to let myself go mad. <laughs> and I'm going to direct my energy in, into a series of albums that I'd already thought about the year before anyway and started working on on a long distance flight from berlin to brazil um and the whole concept and name of frequencies for leaving earth had come to mind the year before and it felt like the perfect time to work on it last year and i knew that the albums by and large i wanted to defy dynamics to evolve so slowly and subtly but increase in intensity under the surface that obviously echoes how someone like the next compose i suppose but 
Whereas they improvise freshly each time. I wasn't. I was more interested in texture and tonality and continuing to um, stretch what my studio is capable of and my chosen tools within the studio. I mean, I've seen you talk about the fact that you're a fan of Elian Radig as well, which um, feels apt to also mention there because I feel like she was on a similar jag. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible, absolutely incredible, you know. And also I think when I started working on Kevin Richard Martin stuff in earnest last year, I mean, obviously I'd already released Sirens on Lawrence English's Room 40 label a year or two before. When I really got stuck in last year to what it was I was after, it was very much how solo can solo be, you know, <laughs> without putting anything else in the way of what I wanted to create, you know, zero compromise, zero thought about any label, zero thought about any other performers, zero thought about any responsive or non-responsive opinions in return i just knew i had to make this music you know and i wanted it to try and find a fresh clear spot that people would see as being a, a fresh sound you know it's very mm. difficult because when you're working in in areas where there's been such incredible recordings and players and composers to find your own voice, I've talked about this before, is the bug with electronic music is a huge challenge, you know, and, and mm. I just wanted to make music that reflected my personality, you know, and, and reflected what I was trying to locate that I couldn't elsewhere. I think so often I make when I make music, I'm trying to make something that I'm not hearing anywhere else, that mm. I don't feel exists or I can't find. Therefore, it's like, oh, well, if fuck it, if I can't find it, I'm going to do it myself, or <laughs> yeah. at least attempt to, even yeah. if it's going to be a complete folly and I fail in the process, at least I'm going to try it, you know, and I think that's what last year was about for me, really. Also, as well, I wanted to mention you released a couple of days back as we're talking Bedroom Loops, uh, which you noted, I think, was, was it recorded or, or created horizontally and designed for listening to horizontally. How did you how did you make it when you say so? Was it made in your bedroom? I was intrigued yeah, just yeah, by the description on the laptop, just like laying on the pillow with another pillow on my knees, with the laptop leaning on it, just composing the skeletal beginnings of each track. I just set myself a goal that in seven days I'd come up with seven sketches. And knowing roughly what it would be that I would be looking for mood-wise and sonically, but being able to, you know, detour from that, the only limitation I set myself, if you can call it a limitation, because in a way it's sort of endless in itself, is that I only wanted to work with granular synthesis because I'd been working on and off with granular synthesis and sampling for, you know, the last year or two. And uh, I'd, I'd found it to be like some of the freshest 
sonic inspiration that my ears had heard. Mm. And it's ironic because despite having composed all components on either granular synthesizers, both software and hardware, on granular effects and granular samplers, the biggest irony of all is it ends up sounding like the Kevin Richard Martin albums that came out <laughs> last year, <laughs> even with these, these other tools, you know. Um, uh-huh. But so, it's interesting because some of the feedback I've seen in the last couple of days, some people have noticed that, that, that there is a difference, you know. And I think there's a colder, more actually more openly sci-fi uh, impact of granular sound sources, you know, literally sort of alien. And for me, instead of, I wanted to sort of melt those down a little and bring them to my world and and make granular sound warm and try not, when you work and experiment with granular synthesis, you realize you've heard a lot of the sounds, you know, before. Right. And how can you, you know, maneuver it to find some fresh zone that doesn't just sound like typical granular experimentation. Let's talk about your final important record, Kevin. So, yeah, if you could give me the name of it and then a bit of an introduction as to why it's important to you. Yeah, well, this one was in terms of the bug, but actually really just in terms of me, musically, full stop, you know, because it was also an inspiration for my first band, God, a vital one. And uh, it's an album by Public Image Limited, uh, which initially was called Metal Box or was known as Metal Box because it came in a, a film can, mm. literally a metal box, circular metal box, and then became known as Second Edition. And I was so young when it came out that I didn't have the money to be able to afford the Metal Box, and a mate of mine did, and he just taped it for me. Piracy <laughs> <laughs> uh, killing music and all that. Uh, <laughs> and it was just a... F- you know, a few years later when I, I picked it up myself and I've ended up rebuying it several times over the years in one format or another. And it still scares me as an album. <laughs> now, <laughs> as much as it did the first time I heard it, you know, like like we were discussing earlier, you know, just that what the hell <laughs> this, you know? I mean, one of the first things that very vivid memories of for me musically in my life was a school friend of mine i can't even remember how young i was i must have been outrageously young at the time playing me never mind the bollocks off a cassette that he'd got and he I, must have been like nine at the time when he had it wow that's <laughs> just nervous giggles giggling about <laughs> it, swearing 
<laughs> which I've never recovered from, obviously. I had an impact. <laughs> um, and the first music that really touched me as a kid, like my mum had bought me records before, of course, because she wanted those records, but thought I would want them. <laughs> but when it came to me purchasing music, the first seven inch I ever bought was by Discharge. I think the first album I ever bought was by The Damned. Um, and it was punk music, you know, mm. just because my childhood wasn't very happy. <laughs> it was a broken home, you know, a broken up, busted up family with a father who was a complete asshole, you know, mm. wife beater, child beater, you name it. And punk music addressed the chaos that was in my life and felt revolutionary, you know, and felt exciting and felt to a very, very young, young boy like an escape, you know, a, a way out. And um, the Sex Pistols, I was too young to really, like, know about musically. I mean, I knew about them, of course. As I told you, I heard them. Mm. And of course, my parents would be dissing the shit out of the Sex Pistols all the time. <laughs> People of their generation were shit scared of the Sex Pistols, what they represented, you know, as well as so many people in the country at that time, which made it all the more attractive to me, you know. Mm -hmm. It was when I heard Public Image Limited after John Lydon had dashed off the Pistols and when he released his first single, I just remember Goosebumps when I heard the first single, you know, just been completely mind blown, mm. not having heard anything like it in my life at that time. And it was that wave of what is now labeled post-punk, I guess, where there was so many artists that really inspired me to actually want to make music, you know, as a very, very young kid, you know, and that just... Killing Joke, Joy Division, uh, ending up, you know, with things like The Birthday Party, but things like Throbbing Gristle, Crass, were major, major, major influences on me as a young kid, you know. Um, and Metal Box in particular, what struck me about Metal Box was my lifeline at the time. I mean, you and I were discussing growing up in, you know, the south of England, and mm -hmm. I was in my lifeline was John Peel because A, I didn't have much money because <laughs> I, uh, I was so young right. and also I couldn't travel to many shows because growing up in Weymouth there weren't that many shows that local or the ones that you could afford to go to or even that my parents would let me go to because I was so young um, so I'd be tuning into John Peel's radio show you know, and he would have Madass sessions by incredible musicians, and in particular, he would be mixing different styles. So he'd play Captain Beefheart next to Free Jazz, next to The Fall, next to Reggae, you know. And growing up in Weymouth at that time, Weymouth is just whiter than white, you know, <laughs> yeah. like really just monoculture and the only time you 
if it wasn't, it would normally be from sailors or holiday makers in the summer coming from whichever parts of the country um, down to Weymouth for vacation. So the idea of me gravitating towards reggae, on one hand, I wouldn't make a lot of sense. But Peel playing reggae made a lot of sense to me. And also, as a very young kid, I always hung out with older dudes than me who were my educators, you know, so they'd be hitting me up with reggae and dub. Um, and at the same time, I'd be listening to Killing Joke, where you've got youth playing reggae bass lines and mm. Public Image Limited, or The Stranglers, where Jean-Jacques Brunel was playing reggae bass lines. And I think it's even been now mentioned somewhere, or someone mentioned to me in recent years, that also Peter Hook talking about how Joy Division were obsessed by dub and reggae too, which I didn't know at the time. Huh. So you got a lot of bands who were being led by the bass in the same way reggae was, as far as I was concerned, you know, because I sort of gravitated towards dub because it reduced everything down to very minimal elements and mad effects and psychedelia. And um, all this roundabout way of me leading to back to metal boxes, Jar Wobble was just the king <laughs> of bastardizing reggae bass lines mm -hmm. you know, and coming up with insanely irresistible grooves, you know, and I, I believe he even wrote drum parts for metal box. Um, and the album's just extraordinary, you know, in so many ways and still so, so many ways to me, because it uses a lot of dub mixing in a really great way, but it's got, a very live feel to lots of the tracks, you know, and I read obviously like Lydon felt that he thought the pistols were too rock and roll and he wanted to break free of that. And the first pill album is even more venomous, I think, and more brutal, but there's something about second edition. I mean, it's a toss up for me that second edition just, just wins out because I, I loved the first album too. But, Second edition, basically, it just felt like a great big ball of anger and frustration and sociopathic hate, but not in a cartoon way like elements of the Sex Pistols did. It just mm. felt sinister and, and nasty and neurotic and deeply, deeply paranoid, you know, and... That's probably how I was feeling at that time. <laughs> right. Um, and it still has an edge for me that that, 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 that is really cutting, you know, in, in, in so many ways, whether it be lyrically, vocally, sonically, with Keith Levine's extraordinary guitar playing. Mm. Um, just so much going for it. You know, I think the world's still to catch up with Metalbox. In fact, I, I remember saying <laughs> in an interview a couple of years ago that my my vision for London Zoo was probably to make my version of Metal Box 
Wow. In as much as I wanted to bring together disparate, you know, styles and feed on the friction of doing that, not trying to, you know, dilute anything. If anything, just try and get everything on fire. And also just trying to capture an atmosphere of a time and place, you know, and lead with the bass. You know, I haven't got a lot of time. When people go on about bass music as if uh, to say that, you know, we do bass music, bass music's important, bass music this, bass music that, leaves me very cold, to be honest. It's a bit like saying, well, I, I do guitar music or I do sax music. <laughs> yeah. I don't give a shit about... <laughs> in, in, in one way, I don't give a shit about what makes the music. It's about why you make the music. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that there's something about bass that <laughs> <laughs> has magnetised me. But it's certainly not in any way the be-all or end-all of what I do or, or care about, you know, it's, but I know personally, I love bass lines. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit contradictory. Um, but it's just, a, like I said, I, when I see this marketing of bass music and people just trying to hype themselves up as if bass is important. Well, actually John Lydon's lyrics are more important on metal box in a way mm. and his approach. And Levine's style of guitar playing is more radical than Wobble's bass playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things catch me on a different day, and I'll be like, actually, they're more important, and, and they're what that smack it, you know, more than Wobble's playing. But I guess it's just that combination of all the elements in there, you know, and it's not just about one element. It's not just about bass, <laughs> you yeah. know. Uh, so, yeah. Metal box, love it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Public Image play live? Uh, no, actually. I mean, that's the thing. When you grew up in Weymouth, I missed out. There's a lot. <laughs> I remember speaking to Nick Bullen, uh, who was one of the original members of Napalm Death uh-huh. and original members of Scorn recently on Facebook, I think it was, where he was mentioning the shows he'd seen. And I was so envious because there were so many great bands that I wish I'd got the chance to see that because I was just stuck in Weymouth. <laughs> it, it, it was it was just impossible at a time where a lot of the music that really inspired me, I would love to have seen. I mean, obviously, as soon as I moved to London, I, Jesus, I saw so much music. Right. You know, at the time. <laughs> and that was my lifeblood, you know, and that was my my apprenticeship and that was my reason for living was the music that pulsed through london's arteries you know and at the same time i was just deeply envious when i was a kid when i'd look at the lineups i'd be reading all the music papers and seeing you know these extraordinary lineups in london and that's probably that's certainly one of the reasons i moved to london you know because it was a dream location in my head, you know, and I, mm. I, I, I was naive in the how I thought how easy it might be to go to London and do get things rolling. It wasn't. It was an absolute nightmare, you know. And 
at the same time, I just knew I wanted to go there because I wanted to see a lot of the music that I just couldn't access in Weymouth. You know, I mean, Justin Broderick uh, from Godflesh and, you know, with me and Zone and Tech Animal grew up in Birmingham. And Birmingham was lucky because it was on that you know, <laughs> tour uh, circuit. Mm-hmm. Weymouth wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I seem to remember about the only band I, two good bands that I saw in Weymouth one was the Blue Orchids and the other was Section 25 but apart from those I'd be really scraping the bottom of the barrel to say <laughs> the good stuff I saw or oh, the League of Gentlemen were pretty good too oh, I saw sorry, um, Napalm Death in Weymouth actually Napalm Death? yeah my wife supported them in her band um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually, it Honest, I, I, I just had a big error because actually the one thing in Weymouth that was good and again really inspired me because I used to go to all the shows and was learning to play music at that time too was the punk punk thing you know so I, I would see big local heroes then was a band called The Mob uh, who came from Yeovil who ended up releasing stuff on Crass's label. And then you'd get bands like Amoebix and Disorder mm. coming and playing in wow. the way quite often. And um, who else played down there? I think Zounds played down there. So, so actually that, that was good in Weymouth. Those, those, those Anaco bands um, that were very, very inspirational to me at that age uh, were coming to Weymouth at that time. But in terms of Public Image Limited now, I, I just, I, and by the time, you know, Flowers of Romance had come out, they'd sort of imploded as a band anyway, really. I think Wobble left after second edition, didn't they? I think? Yes, yeah. that's right. So um, I don't think there would have been anything I would have wanted to see after that, really. You know, and as far as I can tell, the shows were pretty shambolic from what I've been told. <laughs> Maybe there were some great ones. Um, but yeah, no, I, n- I never got to see Pill. I want to just bring up something you said as well about, I mean, you kind of answered it with London Zoo to an extent, but you mentioned that this music that was cropped together in post-punk made you want to start making music. I mean, do you remember your kind of first forays in trying to translate that desire to make music on the basis of hearing these records into actually making music yourself what did that look like it was basically uh roland sh101 and a saxophone and my voice um and a guy called nigel armstrong who was a huge influence on me he was older than me and he he welcomed my ideas and agreed to form a band with me in weymouth and um we it was a local youth club uh, where we were allowed to rehearse in, and we were able to rehearse in. And um, it was about experimentation. It was just the great thing about all that music was it was so heavily experimental. Mm. And that was the whole point, you know, as far as I could tell. And it was DIY. And those ethics combined with just a lot of punk philosophies were the perfect recipe for me for trying to you know, knuckle down to music and try and find my voice artistically through music. And, um, you know, like four track, uh, Tascam 
recorder that Nigel had would be what we'd be recording onto, and then we'd just be bouncing tracks over and over again, you know, for the <laughs> endless amount of information we'd want to try and put in there. <laughs> it all ended up just sounding flat and <laughs> sort of horrible. <laughs> um, and yeah, just trying to do put on shows yourself or grab onto. Sh- I remember we played a show in Dorchester. We'd managed there was a, a, a local dude who was a notorious drug dealer and you know hip social guy who decided that he thought we were the future of music. <laughs> so he he arranged to put on a show in Dorchester got literally coachloads of people to come to the show <laughs> and people from Dorchester coming to the show and we were terrible I mean, oh no it's like stunned lack of reaction or positivity <laughs> in the audience so you know a lot of trial and error really as, as you would when you're young you know trying to find your voice in sound uh, but at the same time being continuously inspired by every new thing you would hear. And there was also, very importantly for me, there was a record shop called Handsome Dicks that was run by a couple of guys who were probably in their 30s at that time, I guess, which seemed old then, (laughs) (laughs) Um, who were really, really cool with young kids and turning us all on to great music, which is obviously in their interest because that means they sell music. But they they were evangelical about their love of, you know, Beefheart, Zappa, Free Jazz, you name it. But they had great taste. And it's where all the local alternative people would gather and hang. And that was really a big part of my education process, you know, because it's it's so hard for – it's probably so hard for a lot of people to recognize now in the days of the internet. You know, you, you take it for granted now how easy it is to access music on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you want to go. But at that time, it you had to be dedicated to try and search out stuff, you know. And I don't mean it was better then. It wasn't. It was a pain in the ass then. Right, yeah. so, uh, but it would be very tough to get hold of, of music, you know, and uh, have access to music and gain knowledge. So I was very fortunate that there was a hub of people around this record shop that were very quick to gather me under their wing you know and uh, and teach me that music didn't have to be shit (laughs) (laughs) music could be inspiring and different and and revel in its difference and revel in being maverick and original and antagonistic and caustic you know i've heard some people talk about the fact that they grow up in somewhere slightly more remote that's starved of regular shows and having to sort of yearn for this stuff from afar you know i think melvin's had that element about them they came from the sticks even maybe like della soul right compared to some of the music coming out of the city that suburban element gave them something different is there a, like, is there yeah, a sense I think, that... I think it helped me. I yeah, I was going to say. I remember reading incredible reviews by a, a writer who was a big influence on me called Deli Fidella, uh, who... Um, he was responsible for me buying the first Public Enemy album the week it came out, 
and he was also the one responsible, more or less, for getting me to listen to On You Sound, you know, and oh, wow. his reviews of On You Sound live shows were just so tantalizing and sounded so incredible. But because I think Adrian Sherwood had decided, you know, to to go in different directions, which I can totally understand, as we all do. You know, you don't want to repeat yourself over and over ad infinitum. Mm. By the time I'd moved to London, I think I'd missed, you know, the 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 explosive Mark Stewart and the Mafia shows, or the incredible African Head Charge shows, mm. the Kalani shows. But in a way, it's good that I did because it meant I wanted that, and with the chaos of bug shows and you know, the intensity and atonality and the madness that I'd like to conjure sometimes at bug shows. Um, in a way, it was trying to reproduce what I'd read in those reviews about shows I'd never attended. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah, you're right. You're right. In a way, and as I said earlier, throughout my musical um, history, I've always tried to make music that I can't find anywhere else or I can't hear, even if it's a juxtaposition or a, a willful contrast of things that shouldn't go together, you know? So yeah, long way again of saying I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> One more question for you, Kevin, which is you're listening to an album a day at the moment, and I'm sure you do plenty of other listening besides that as well, but when you really want to listen to a record and soak it up, is there a specific location or environment or whatever that you use in order to really do that? Yeah, I've got to say that the irony and pain of the last year and a half is that actually touring uh, would it was always optimum time for me to um, to just you know immerse myself in my headphones and as far back as I can remember like when I was a horrible ignorant little shit as a <laughs> young kid and carrying a huge ghetto blaster through Weymouth <laughs> playing like punk tracks very loud when I walk past policemen <laughs> <laughs> Um, to the dawn of the Walkman, to the dawn of the iPod. My life's always been about getting lost in sound, you know, and having a pair of headphones on. Or when my parents used to argue like shit all the time and have all-out warfare, I would just literally grab the speakers off the, the bookcase, pull them down on the, to the floor on either side of my head and just ramp up the, the discharge and crash records nice. <laughs> just to get those those battles out of my 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 ears you know mm. and i think touring is the the place 
were certainly for me just you know being on planes or being on trains or being going from a to b and looking for a soundtrack for that and like i said frequencies for leaving earth was composed on a long distance flight to brazil um but in terms of just having the time and space and lack of uh, obstacles to losing yourself in what you're listening to, I always find tra- the travel zones are the place to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think increasingly it's difficult for people now to play music loud at home because, you know, unless you're very fortunate, we're all living in, well, not all, but so many people live in urban areas where you have neighbors who aren't going to be too happy about you playing scientists and root shradic rhythms (laughs) (laughs) plus 20, you know? Uh, So yeah, I guess, I guess that's the time really. And it's a shame because I I miss that Uh, in the last year and a half. That's one thing I miss about touring is just locking into albums. And that was one of the reasons why, I decided to start this little idea up of an album a day on uh, Instagram. Is there anything before we wrap up, anything you want to mention, Kevin, that you got coming up in the imminent future that we haven't already touched on? Oh, there's, there are quite a lot, (laughs) (laughs) but nothing I'm not, uh, I'm actually allowed to, to speak about, but I'll say that I've finished the next bug album and Ninja Tune are going to release it. And I'm super happy with it. Great. And it's relentlessly uncompromising. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Great. Well, Kevin, thank you once again. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Yeah, brilliant, Jack. It's been a big fun uh, chatting with you.